once when I showed up at Limelight, um, Tom, the manager, kind of walkie-talkie, Michael Musto's here, have his drink ready when he reaches the top of the stairs at the library. And I walk up to the library and he hands me the vodka cranberry and I'm like, this is either the low point of civilization or the high point of my entire life. Money, success, fame, glamour. Money, success, fame, glamour. Well, hello, I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, the celebration of New York nightlife legends from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello. Hello. Yes, we are celebrating the party monsters, the club kids, the night crawlers, the denizens of the downtown, children of the night, the true architects of the New York club scene. I am here with one of the most wonderful people on the planet, someone who was a real mentor of mine when I first hit New York City, some, my gay mother, if you will, someone who means more to me than, than life itself. I'm so happy to have with us Michael Musto. How are you? James, yes, I am the oldest club kid in the world. My oldest, oldest friend. <laughs> um, you are the author of four books. I wanted to just qu quickly bring them up here. We have Downtown right here, a manifesto about the downtown culture in the 1980s. And Andy Warhol's name is bigger than mine. Andy Warhol's font is bigger than yours. You have a fictional book called Manhattan on the Rocks, of which I am a thinly veiled character named Flavio Laron, is that correct? <laughs> I think there's a character named Randy Zorhol. I couldn't figure <laughs> out who even I was talking about. It's so thinly veiled. Two different books of collected articles from the Village Voice. We have La Dolce Musto and then Forks on the Left, Knife in My Back. And those were so easy. I just collated a bunch of old columns and said, here, publish these, and I'll make more money off of them. People hopefully won't figure you could just Google these. <laughs> <laughs> So how are you? How have you been surviving the pandemic? Well, I went to a dinner last Friday. Uh, Mr. Mickey took me to a dinner at a place called Veronica at a photographic museum. And it was just like nothing had ever changed. The superficial crowd, of which I am the king, <laughs> just have an incredible ability to just return to abnormal because we were all sitting on top of each other. We've all been vaccinated, mind you. I've been vaccinated nine times. My arm is a little <laughs> sore from the eighth one. But this woman <laughs> came up to me, this beautiful blonde woman. She goes, hi, you don't remember me, do you? And I was like, oh, what nightmare is this? I was like, no. And I rolled my eyes and she goes, I'm Paulina Poroskova. I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> I jumped up. Hi, darling. I, I didn't recognize you with blonde hair. How's Aaron Sorkin going? When I first got to New York, I, I don't know if people out there know this, but um, I, I mean, I had a vision and I knew what I wanted to do, but it wasn't until Michael took me under his wing and really just sort of cracked open New York City for me. You were like an anti-mame character. Thank you for saying that. But James, the second you arrived, you were very socially savvy. You really did not need a lot of help. You knew how to work a rope. Like I would call James and say, could you help me out? I'm doing an interview for the Philadelphia Inquirer and I need a friend. And he'd be like, can you just call me for bigger newspapers? <laughs> and I was like, this kid 
knows what's going on. You would say to me, you've never seen Picnic before? <laughs> you've never seen Gypsy? And you would sit there and you would sit me down and make me watch every, you know, the gay essential, every movie I needed to know. And I remember we would do The Mirror Cracked with, with Kim Novak and Elizabeth Taylor. We knew every line from that and we would quote it back and forth to each other. There are two things I hate about you. Your face. Or you call that a picture? I could swallow a can of Kodak and puke up a better picture. <laughs> I can see you've kept your girlish figure and added so much more. <laughs> but Michael, why did you why did you adopt James or take him under your wing? What what was I mean? You said he was socially very adept, but what else? Yeah, he was because he came up to me. I mean, I was the village voice columnist at this point. He buzz buzz buzz. You know, I, I'm like a I'm like a no pest strip where the People <laughs> well, I do remember I remember the first time I saw you at Area and I ran up to you and I said, Oh my god, I'm Jim St. James, I'm your biggest fan. And you said, Thank you, darling. Do you have any drink tickets? <laughs> and I said and I said, No, I don't. And you said, Oh, well <laughs> Yeah. And you know what's funny is that I remember I was with you at um the New Music Seminar in nineteen eighty five or eighty six and this little kid came up to us with a mohawk and rubber waders and mylar streamers. And he said, my name's RuPaul, and I'm going to be a big star. And I said, do you have drink tickets, darling? <laughs> but, but he did the same thing that I did to you. And I remember we both looked at each other and we were like, what the hell was that? It was like the ending of All About Eve where there's like a new Eve Harrington coming along. <laughs> but yeah, I said she's going nowhere. I said Madonna was going nowhere. My perspicacity is just amazing. I want to go way, way back. Um, I, I know that you grew up in Bensonhurst and that you went to Columbia School of Journalism. And that when you were at Columbia, you were the theater critic for the Columbia Spectator. Am I right? Right. I went to Columbia undergrad, not Columbia journalism. Oh, Columbia undergrad. Okay. Um, you, when you first started out, you were the boy from Brooklyn. Was that the, the nom de plume that you used when you would write Cynthia Heimel? Yeah, there was a paper called the Soho Weekly News, which was even more alternative than the Village Voice. It was really underground and cool. And Cynthia Heimel did a column called Ms. Lonely Hearts. She didn't put her byline on it. I didn't know who wrote it. I assumed it was a gay man because it was such a campy column. And this is after I graduated Columbia. I was living with my parents for a while. And I wrote to her and I called myself the Brooklyn Kid. The Brooklyn Kid. Yeah, and it became a running feature of the paper. And then she gave, she told me, guess what? Ms. Lonely Hearts is me, Cynthia Heimel. I'm the features editor. And she started giving me feature assignments. And that's how I started. She sent me to Studio 54 to interview Steve Rubell. I was like a nerdy, I looked like a, a wire hanger that had been unspooled <laughs> with like a, some Brillo on my head. In a zippered turtleneck my mother had got me from Sears Roebuck and here I am at Studio 54 and every time after that when Steve Rubell saw me at the door he would pull me in and it was such a a jushy kind of mental feeling. It was fabulous. Had you been to Studio 54 prior to that? No, I mean I had stood there because I had interviewed uh, Sylvia Miles, the two-time Oscar-nominated actress, as she always reminded you. Was that for After Dark? Where did you interview her for? Uh, it was for TV Star Parade, which was my first job. It was a fan magazine where they somehow 
let me go interview this Andy Warhol star at the Russian Tea Room, and they even paid for it. And then I would stand there with my friend Tiny outside Studio 54 and watch... Tiny from Billboard magazine, right? Later on, yeah, later on. Later on, yeah. We would watch Sylvia pull up and Jush in, and I thought of being one of those people going, Sylvia, take me in. But I already knew I'm not going to like that type of person. I don't want to be that type of person. (laughs) But then once I met Steve Rubell and interviewed him, he was very press savvy. He would pull me in. But when he wasn't at the door, Mark Benneke, the regular doorman, would look down on his stool and look at me like I was a decaying rodent. He People would say, Mark, that's Michael Musto. And he was like, I know. (laughs) But anyway, James, then they had a a press agent took over studio and they had a guest list at the side door. So I had guaranteed entry for everything after that. But there wasn't that rush of exhilaration of being pulled in like Courtney Cox in the Springsteen video. Oh, because you were just going in the side door. And you knew you were going to get in. There wasn't that will I, won't I, Sophie's Choice kind of thing. (laughs) But so so Cynthia brought you into um, Soho Weekly News, which is where you met Annie Flanders and, and Stephen Sabin and everybody. And that probably opened the doors to when you started working at Details in 1982. But I want to go back to Sylvia Miles, because I remember when Sylvia died, you talked a lot about how she was also a mentor to you. She took you out and she took you under her wing and she showed you how to press whore. Can I say that? Uh, nobody worked a room like Sylvia and she knew everyone and she introduced me to Bob Colicello. As a result, I started writing for interview. The only downside was I started to feel like William Holden in Sunset Boulevard a little bit, minus the sex. We were not stumping. But uh, Thank you for clarifying. I know there was a lot of wonderment out there. <laughs> Were they shopping? But she was a little narcissistic, and I'm narcissistic, so I wanted the night out to be about me, and she wanted it to be about her. So we parted ways. But she did teach me a lot about the social game that we play out there, just like I then passed it on to you, James. <laughs> you are also Michael Musto and the Must. You are a singer, um, a performer, performing all over. How are the Musts? I don't know. We don't keep in touch. But, I mean, we debuted at Hurrah, this uptown nightclub, and we were doing great. It was my birthday celebration. It was a campy Motown cover band. I had an accordion player. I pulled out a viola I had rented because I played viola in high school. I was playing viola on (laughs) I'm Living in Shame. It didn't make any sense, but the crowd was loving it. And halfway through, I noticed people started looking kind of over it. They started streaming for the exit. I was like, what happened? It turned out John Lennon had just been shot dead at the Dakota a few blocks away, and people were streaming there for a candlelit vigil. That was my debut. (laughs) (laughs) But then we kept going, you know, the show must go on. And uh, one night we had equal billing with Madonna at a place called Chase Park. It was a Chase Bank that became a nightclub. And she, oh, wait, oh, she didn't wait, wait, she didn't open for you. I thought I always thought that the story was the no, it was she wasn't famous yet. She was up and coming. We were going nowhere. And we were equal build in the advertising. Madonna the must. <laughs> <laughs> and she was a bitch. <laughs> did she did, did she not let you sound check? Is there something is there a story there? What was it? That she wasn't even aware that we existed. Like she was sound checking from every angle of the mic for hours and they had to open the doors of the club and we were standing there like we didn't get a sound check. And then after we went on first, even though we we're equal built, we went to the shared dressing room after to greet our friends and her manager, Camille, at the time said, you cannot greet friends here. Madonna's getting ready. And I'm like, sorry, honey, we didn't even get to sound check. And this is a shared dressing room. You're going to have to deal with it. And she backed down. And I thought, 
gee, this woman went on to make the world her gynecologist and she did not want to <laughs> change in front of strangers. But I love Madonna and I gave her so many props for what she's accomplished and for being an ally to the queer community. I look back on some of those days and I really think that, that you and I, especially, we had such a wonderful time. We had so many wonderful years and those were like the salad days. Those were really like, the, I think of that 84 to 88 era as being like a golden age in New York nightlife. And so many of the parties stay in my mind. Do you have some that really stand out to you? Do you have some parties that just like are some of your all-time favorites? Uh, there was one of the first parties at the tunnel was my birthday party, and nobody was shot that night, thank God. But I remember Pia Zadora sent a 10-speed bicycle as a gift because she was all about payola and grift. I love Pia Zadora. And somehow they got Pia Lindstrom to present it to me. Like, we have to get somebody named Pia. <laughs> and, like, and um, then Dean Johnson, who of course was a six foot six ball drag queen, who yes. screamed "fuck you," he was brilliant. I asked him to sing a song about me because he did a song about Terry Toy and Diane Brill. Remember all that? He goes, "Oh, I can't, oh, yeah. I can't possibly do that." I was like, "Okay, whatever. Just get up and do a song." He gets up and does a song about you, James. And I'm like, at my birthday, after he said he could, again, I don't hold grudges. At my birthday, after he said he couldn't even do a song about somebody, he did it about you. I remember Congo Bill, what a thrill. Fucking in the bosom of Diane Brill, <laughs> Terry Toy. It's such a dish. Who is that boy with Alan Rish? Here comes Andy. There's Way Bandy. I see Anita Sarko, too. There isn't anybody scarier, Terry. But can you get me into area, Terry? <laughs> he was a genius. But I wrote in the voice that he restored the wit to rap music, and I got all this response. It was a stupid thing to write. Rap is a black art form. You don't need a white person. Well, I mean, Dean was his own sort of special genius. I think one of my favorite parties, remember Vito Bruno, who did all those wonderful outlaw parties, um, he was going to open a club on a barge. Do you remember this? I remember he had one on a, on a sanitation pier, and it was Annie Flanders' birthday. She was the editor of Details, yes. who I knew from Soho News. And I got my must vocalist together. We sang happy birthday to her just as they were clearing it off. Because an outlaw party, for those who don't know, is something that only insiders know about. You get there on time because you know it's going to get busted because it's in a public place that, where you're not supposed to have a party. We had them everywhere. Michael Alec had them in McDonald's and... Uh, Kiyoki had one on a subway and stuff like that. And this one, as they're clearing it, we're quickly singing happy birthday. And you see the picture and details of Annie looking all glowing and happy. And Yavito really pioneered that kind of thing. But but wait, wasn't the thing that it started sinking? It started yeah. taking on water <laughs> and as we were all on it in the middle of the river. And so they started, they had to quickly get everybody off because people were going to drown. But the only person they let off first was Diane Brill. And we were all standing there on a sinking barge as, the, as we saw one boat go off with Diane in a rubber dress waving goodbye to us. It was like we were on the Titanic and Diane was the only one being saved. And she's the only one who would have floated <laughs> irony irony that's why you're not supposed to have parties at these places and that was the fun of it we didn't care if we were going to drown we wanted to drown partying 
I think one of my favorite all-time parties was the outlaw party that Vito Bruno did on the Williamsburg Bridge. The news said that they would film the party, but they would air it at 11.25. So because the minute it aired, the police would know where the party was, and they would come and, and bust it up. So we had that guaranteed 25 minutes of party, and every time... Uh, the train went by, the party would stop, and everyone would he'd wave at everyone on the train, and then the people from the train would get off and come and join the party, and the party kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, at 11.25, when they aired it on the news, the police came, and they said, okay, Vito, you can have one more song. You can let your people dance to one more song. And that's when Sheila E. got up on stage and sang Glamorous Life, and it was. It was the most glamorous thing that I've ever seen scene and that was just as Andy Warhol arrived with Boy George and Cornelia Guest and Diane Brill was walking up and Annie Flanders and Stephen Saban and Sally Randall and Michael Schmidt and Elisa E and it was just it was the most fabulous party ever and you know what one impetus for going out I have to admit because I'm a press whore even though I'm a member of the press is anytime you left the house you got written up there was so much media about that scene, including myself. There was a woman named Dinah Prince who did a column in the New York Daily News. I remember walking to area once and I saw like a, a deflated balloon of an airplane on the street. I put it on my head and strapped it with a rubber band. I walk in, Dinah Prince wrote me up. She goes, what are you wearing? I was like, oh, it represents the crashing of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> and it became... That became an item in the New York Daily News. That's how easy it was to get press. It was Dinah did Downtown and Billy um, Norwich, William Norwich did Uptown. And Uptown was like Monday and Wednesday and Downtown was Tuesday and Thursday. And Billy was really Billy Goldberg, but he said, I'm Billy Norwich from Goldberg, Connecticut. <laughs> how do we remember all this? I mean, you did a lot of drugs. How do you remember? I have, it, we'll get to that part in a second. But Michael, paint us a picture of how the downtown scenes and uptown scenes, they were very different, right? And then was it is it true to say at the beginning of the 80s, they started to come together? They were so different because they have such different values. Uptown is about being born with money and just automatically thinking you're hot shit because of that. Downtown is about making something of yourself and being something that's not, wearing something that's not in the pages of women's wear. But the clash became more of a cross-pollination because we were invited sometimes to the same thing. Our Corey Hay, I think, was one of the people who kind of brought Uptown Downtown together. And uh, Keith Herring loved to bring real money people with the hip-hop kids and all that. Yeah, Mark Jacobs also. I remember Mark Jacobs would bring some of the socialites downtown to meet us and everything. I also remember, Michael, I remember you and I, well, me, I, we were, I was kicked out of the Hamptons one time because we were at Hetty Kleinman's 50th birthday party and we all went together. We were invited to some hot shot like Ann Bass or somebody, somebody's big estate in the Hamptons. And I wore a little girl's dress with a, a big party hat and pinafores and carried my lunchbox. And we walked into the party and it was like one of those record scratches. <laughs> Like that, and everybody turned and stared and looked at me, and they said, "Oh no, you cannot be here." And I was escorted out of the party, and that was one of those headlines in both uptown and downtown in the Daily News: James St. James thrown out of the Hamptons. <laughs> at least you got press out of it. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was thrown out of Sydney Lumet's Hamptons estate. I was hanging with uh, Jenny and Amy, the daughters. 
and word came that Sidney Lumet wants me and my other gay friend out of there. I was just going to say that, that, that Amy and Jenny were some, like Angela Genglo and Cornelia Guest, they were some of those uptown girls who came downtown, but Sidney didn't like you, Sidney? Uh, I don't maybe he read what I wrote about the Wiz. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cornelia Guest used to run through area looking for, boy, George, where, yeah, remember Sidney Masters? Where's George? She had like a fake British accent. <laughs> Sidney G. Masters, <laughs> Fake yes. British accent. Where's George? <laughs> we know why you're looking for George. You want Coke. Sidney <laughs> <laughs> G. Masters was his unofficial manager, right? Boy George's. And Tasty unofficial... Tim. Let's not forget Tasty Tim. Tasty Tim and Marilyn. Yes. Michael, when you started writing the Dolce Mosto in the Village Voice, when, when was that? Um, and how did that come about? It was in 1984, and my predecessor was a brilliant gay gossip columnist named Arthur Bell. He had passed. I had already done a few pieces for the Village Voice, so I waited a respectable amount of time, and then I submitted my interest, you know, if you're looking for someone. They hired me to do a sample column. I actually got paid to audition, and they liked the fact that I was already plugged into the club scene. When I met with David Schneiderman, the publisher, he said, what are the clubs? And I, like, rattled them off. There's Limelight, Area, Dance Interior, Pyramid. There was an East Village scene. There was, you know, an Uptown scene, and I was in on all of it, as well as caring about movies, theater, and cabaret, and everything else. And I found that as it went on, I became more and more politicized because at this point, AIDS was out of control. It was a death sentence. It was horrifying and it kept mounting. So by 87, I joined ACT UP, which was the activist group to get President Reagan to notice and to get the media to do something because only the community itself was even responding to it and some allies. But uh, so then I became more and more like gay, gay, gay. Like every syllable was gay, gay, gay and screaming mixed with. Then I went to a party in Limelight. It was like a very schizo column for a while. But I, I do want to point out uh, someone who was very influential to you at that time was probably Michelangelo Signorelli, who was a friend of both of ours that we would go out with all the time. And he had another nightlife column and he too became very politicized in that 87 period and started the magazine out week with Gabriel Rotello. And I think it, both of you became hyper aware of the AIDS epidemic and how that was affecting everybody. And you both sort of, sort of fed off of each other in a way that was really interesting. Oh, well, he was totally a mentor to me. And he, Michelangelo and I were both approached at Limelight by this hot guy named Adam who told us about ACT UP. It was partly that he was so hot that we thought we should go. But also we were both like in a rage, obviously, about nothing being done by the powers that be about this horrifying plague. And then Michelangelo would call me every day. This was before Internet. And he would tell me about who he was mad at. Pat Buckley would not disagree with her husband about being anti-people with AIDS. Uh what he would enlighten me to like Liz Smith, who was the big syndicated gossip columnist, how she would closet celebrities. He really opened my mind a lot and fed me so many items. And we worked together uh, helping each other. But mainly, he's the one who inspired me. I think I remember your first column at the Village Voice. And I want to just say that the opening sentence was... It was the kind of day you wake up screaming and kept on screaming all day long. Is that is that close, the, am I correct? Close, yeah. What was it? They build it as the column without a conscience, which I 
I'm not really crazy about that, but it was a column that was going to break the rules, push the buttons, push envelopes, make people angry. And it made so many people angry. At first, I was just negative and nasty until I learned to show my appreciation because I love celebrities. Why else would I write about them if I didn't like to be around them? But uh, I developed more and more of a conscience with the ACT UP stuff. Like it became more righteous. This was before Twitter, where everyone on earth is screaming and virtue signaling and showing their righteous anger at everything. Yes. You know, this was just me and Michelangelo basically uh -huh. calling out homophobia when nobody else was doing it. So many of the people that you called out and, and out we called out when you think of Rosie O'Donnell and Jodie Foster and Whitney Houston, I remember was one of the people um, in the idea how important it was for the people who were gay to and in the closet to show representation and how standing up for yourself and coming out of the closet was such a big deal and it was so important. Absolutely. We needed that representation. And people say, well, it's up to them. Of course it's up to them, but it's up to me to do my job, which is to say they're gay. Come out. Um, Ellen and Anne, remember Ellen DeGeneres and Anne Hage, they showed up hand in hand at a premiere and the media just wrote, oh, good friends, Ellen and Anne. It's like, no, not good friends. They're holding hands. Then I got a phone call. They're making out at a lesbian bar in New York. They're lesbians. They're lovers. So I worked on outing that. That, that, that wasn't even outing. I mean, they were publicly making out. They wanted to be reported on. In the case of Rosie, uh, she was sick of me constantly talking about her and how she was not really in love with Tom Cruise. Remember all that? My Tom? <laughs> yeah. And how she was a lesbian. And she uh, hosted the Tony Awards once, and during a commercial break, she made a lesbian joke to the audience that was there. And she said, oh, I'd love to be the one to sort of change Raquel Welch for her Victor Victoria costume. And after that, Rosie came up to me. She goes, that was for you. And she said, maybe now you'll stop talking about my private life. But I didn't. <laughs> and we, you know what? We became friends again and we buried the hatchet in Donald Trump. And she was the first speaker at my roast uh, over three years ago. And she gave a brilliant speech. And she's such an ally. I'm all for forgiveness. I, aren't you yeah, guys? Like yeah. Any of those people have become allies. But it's interesting, Michael, because I think in a way, Downtown, you could be as gay as you wanted, but it was a bubble in the sense that, it, and it was people would get angry if it traveled outside of that bubble, which really speaks to the fact that society-wide there was a homophobia and that the idea that we all felt we, we could do what we wanted downtown, but there it should stop. Yeah, I mean, I would see like Peter Allen, uh, who didn't know he was gay, but still he wouldn't say it on the record. He would be at the Roxy dancing around with his shirt off. Come out, you know? And then it became like dominoes. Once the first person came out, everyone's out now, practically. I remember I did a cover story for Out Magazine called The Glass Closet, and it was Jodie Foster and Anderson Cooper. They were glass closet. In other words, they were kind of living gay lives, but they wouldn't say it on the record. And I couldn't believe it took so long for Anderson to do it. And of course, now he's the hero. Now it's like Michael Musto who? But it's like <laughs> the out Anderson Cooper is like, all right, whatever. Can we talk about drugs for a minute? I'm curious about, you never really have been into drugs. Like you, 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 so much of your life has been spent in clubs and often people do do drugs in clubs. And how did you, how did that work for you? And also I'm curious about your perception of how drugs have impacted nightlife over the course, particularly over the eighties and nineties. 
Um, even when we talked before about drink tickets, to me it was more of a validation because I would walk into a club, they would hand me a stack of drink tickets. I never had more than two drinks a night, and they were always so watered down, as you remember, James. Yes. Like, you only got like a mild buzz out of it. It kind of socially lubricated me. But then at some point in the 90s, I just totally stopped, and I never looked back. And as for drugs, I'm too much of a control freak. I want to be coherent so I can write about what I experience. And I'm also cheap, so I'm like, if I get into a drug habit, I don't want to spend money on that. That's what I'm thinking. And I sort of uh, project something that people realize he's not somebody who wants drugs. So they don't come at me with drugs very much. One time I did ecstasy and I ended up hugging some guy at La Palace de Butte, the love machine, remember? <laughs> and we became boyfriends for six months and it was so horrible. Like the whole relationship was just trying to get back that moment when we were on ecstasy and hugging and liked each other. He was passive aggressive. I'm passive aggressive. It was a disaster. So I was like, I'm never doing that again. And as for how it impacts nightlife, if it's part of nightlife, that's fine. I'm not Nancy Reagan. The more you preach that people shouldn't do it, the more they want to do it. I just think people should submit to the stimuli of nightclubs in themselves, the music, the lights, the people. To me, that was always enough. Uh -huh. At Studio 54, one of my first big clubs, I never even entertained the thought of doing coke. It was such a head-spinning experience in itself. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, obviously I got very into drugs in the 90s and I became a bit of a mess. And I think that there's a misconception between me and you that as I became more and more fucked up, I was embarrassed to see you because I didn't like the way I was on drugs. I'm a terrible cocaine addict. Oh my God, I'm just the worst person in the world. I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. I no. I would see you and I would run away because I was just embarrassed of, of who I was. I just honestly thought, oh, he dumped me because Michael Alex the hot new thing. No, no. In the beginning, I was in love with Kiyoki, but then it was I was doing a lot of drugs and I was just mortified at the person I'd become and I didn't want to see people like you or Diane or Steven Sabin or Anita Sarko because I felt like I, I would be judged, but I was just more judging myself. I get it. Yeah, see, I'm glad we've lived long enough to work some things out. I'm always like, James, why did you fall in love with Kaoki? He was Michael's boyfriend. I don't, I, I couldn't, we don't have time for that now. Michael Ailing's boyfriend, let's be clear. You know, I, I don't even know what that was. It was six months. <laughs> yes, I know. I thought he was a top. He wasn't. He was oh. I'm the only true top in New York, let's face it. <laughs> and I didn't even know you were a top. You were a very timid top, Michael. I know. I'm not a bossy top. I was very much in love with you when I was 19 years old. I had no idea what any of that was. Oh, God. I want to sort of go back to... Oh, no. Yes. Nine, in 1987, there was something called the death of downtown after Andy Warhol died. Um, do you want to sort of take us through that, Michael? Well, Warhol, to me, was the centerpiece of the scene. When you saw him in a room, you knew you were in the right place. Everyone craved his validation. I know I did. And I was thrilled that through Benjamin Liu, his assistant, he came up with that blurb on the cover of my book, Downtown. Andy never said it. <laughs> Andy's told Benjamin, tell Michael to write whatever he wants, and I'll put my name on it. So I wrote this, like, really wordy. An incredible guy to the downtown seat. Andy Warhol didn't talk like that. In any case, <laughs> not only did Andy die, but the clubs were dying. The excitement was dying. People were moving on. Yuppies were taking over. The paying customers, the dreaded bridge and tunnel people were taking over. <laughs> and the press was drying up. So a lot of us didn't feel like we felt like going out to what had been an incredible Fellini-esque 
very grown up clink clink kind of party every night. It was really fun to walk into area, go right through the dance floor, go to the VIP room and you knew everyone there. That moment was passed. But James, I ended the piece by saying, of course, nothing's ever really over. Something's going to come back to kick everyone in the pants. It might be a revolution. By God, there it was right around the corner. We're the club kids. Yes. So anyway, I love Liza Minnelli. I'm just changing subjects. <laughs> Cabaret was her best film. Let's lies, lies, lies. <laughs> no, 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 hate. no, no, Always but, but, talking but there, about the club kids. Okay, about the club kids, Michael. Uh, well, yes. you know when Liza did Rent a Cop, that was a step, a big step backward. <laughs> I thought. But no, 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 but but the idea of the fact that after Warhol died, that Warhol was this sort of character who brought everything. He brought Broadway. He brought uptown. He brought downtown. He brought Hollywood. Everybody together into one room. And then when he died, there was a vacuum in the club scene. And that's when Michael Aleg sort of zipped in and and took over the the dregs of downtown, what was left of it, and sort of invented his own little scene. And that was the Club Kids. Amy Vershup did a story in New York Magazine called Club Kids in which she gave the name. They were just the Tunnel Kids before that. And she gave them the name Club Kids. So take it from there. Well, Liza won the Tony Award for, um, <laughs> for Flora the Red Menace. Um, no, yeah, it was a sort of very charismatic, interesting, exciting, dark, reckless scene that was taking over. To me, Michael Alec was amoral in many ways, but there were things obviously we're all attracted to. Uh, the fact that he liked to shake things up, the fact that he wouldn't tolerate boredom, the fact that he was fun to be with, to talk to a mile a minute, uh, you know, and that he had these ideas. He, it, it wasn't just a ripoff of the, of the British scene. He, he put together these events that were sometimes poorly organized, but they had something. They had what I talked about at the end of Death of Downtown, where he was shaking things up in a punky uh, way that forced you to, forced you to pay attention. You were one of the first people to write about Angel. You were the first person who wrote about Angel Melendez, his disappearance. Well, I wrote about, uh, yeah, Michael had called me. He was a mess and he was uh, fired from Limelight. And he, he was, and I asked around, I found out the buzz and I put something about a missing person. Two weeks after that, I put the blind item about the killing of Michael and Freeze killing Angel Melendez. And none of this was in your book because I don't, what whatever whatever let's have a separate phone call um the lead item of page six uh in april 96 was mystery of the missing club kid and it put together my two items as well as a new york magazine thing where they talked to michael and he even admitted certain uh uh conflicts let's say and that's really what what made the story the me new york magazine page six but there was, I mean, very true. There, there was your blind items. Um, and then there, I think, I can't remember where in the timeline Frank Owen wrote his pieces, but it seemed that there was a tremendous resistance, even when it was publicly known, for anything to happen, you know? Well, the problem is the cops kept saying, um, you know, well, there's no evidence. And there is that. They have to have evidence. But there's also the fact that it's a Hispanic gay drug dealer who's missing. That doesn't make it your top priority if you're a policeman. It was more important for the police to get Michael 
uh, as a witness against Peter, who was a bigger fish to fry, than to nab him for the death of a gay Hispanic drug dealer. They overlooked Michael's crime until there was a body, until the body washed ashore. That's unbelievable. They were willing, as long as Michael was going to be a, a witness. And then when Michael wasn't able to be a witness, that's when they suddenly found, oh my goodness, well, he did this other crime. Another horror of Angel's death is not just the loss of life. It's It fed into the Giuliani uh, ear, you know, crackdowns of, look, nightlife is full of bad people. Yeah. Nightlife is full of drug dealers. Nightlife is full of murderers. We have to end nightlife. So, gee, thanks, Mike Longfries. And it's funny that, that Giuliani is still in the news today. Is he a different person now than he was back then? Or yes. Is he still oh, person? yes. He is even worse. He has gone beyond just covering up murders and exploiting murders and cracking down on nightlife. He is now a Russian asset who is completely sleazy and inept. Uh, Four Seasons Landscaping. Uh, who was his big witness? That drunken stripper who worked one day as a cleaning lady at Dominion and uncovered a seven-year plot with a dead Venezuelan? She's amazing. Uh, <laughs> no, Giuliani is so low, and he's being sued by Dominion. He's being investigated for all sorts of things. He has to be at least disbarred, and I would say put also behind bars. Another person, of course, Donald Trump. I remember we used to think of Donald and Ivana as the uptown versions of Diane and Rudolph. <laughs> <laughs> but and they, they, we went to some parties from Donald Trump. I remember we went to the opening of Wallman Rink. Remember that when he rechristened that as Donald Trump skating yes. ring? Yeah, he came up to me once and he was like, you do a good job, Michael. And he was trying to kill me with kindness because I always trashed him. I would go on Keith Olbermann's show and talk about him. <laughs> and that was when he would kill you with kindness. Now he'll just kill you. But um, it didn't work. It was like the Rosie O'Donnell thing. It was like, I'm going to write what I want. And that's what I loved about having that column in The Voice. The, the Voice is coming back, and The Voice is back, I should say, and that you're writing for them again. It's back as a quarterly print publication and a website. I wrote for the first issue in April. Uh, I'm not sure going forward what I'll be doing for them, but hopefully some more. But Ivanka would show up at my party. She showed up at a book party of mine, and it was – there's a picture of me, Ivana, not Ivanka, sorry. It was me, Ivana, Amanda Lepore, and Randy Jones, the cowboy from the Village People. It was like the Mount Rushmore of weird. <laughs> but I kind of, I cottoned, uh, I cottoned to Ivana. I thought she was uh, interesting. I, you know, I still have a soft spot for Ivana. I will always, I, I, you know, she had terrible taste in men, but God bless her. I loved her to death. I like those self-made creatures. I like Jocelyn Wildenstein. <laughs> Remember the cat lady? Yeah. I remember a lot of your birthday parties, you would always have Secrete Gable. I had Secrete because she testified against her own mother, and I kind of love that. It's like you're on the stand. <laughs> you've testified that you're going to tell the truth. Sorry if mom <laughs> is not happy with that. But, uh, you know, by the way, Nelson Sullivan, can we talk yes. about him? Because oh, yeah, please. Nelson, of course, is the brilliant late videographer who documented the 1980s. He had access. I would bring him everywhere. I went, whether it be a nightclub or my parents' house for a holiday or a, a band gig in Boston. He captured RuPaul and Sylvia and Christina and all these people. And uh, Lahoma and RuPaul all moved to New York and lived with Nelson. And Lady Bunny was part of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And this hot guy named Trade. Oh, Trade. We were all in love with Trade, weren't we? Oh, my God, yes. Trade was with, with Nelson, I think, the last day of his life on July 4th. When, yeah. Um, 
you told me the other day that you are in possession of a lot of Nelson's videos that have never been uploaded onto YouTube or anywhere. Nobody's ever seen them except for you. Yeah, well, I guess the guy who has the archives probably has them, but I'm not sure. But they're not on YouTube. They're things like when he came to my parents' house for Easter, Christmas, and I would have all these guests from New York. My parents became acclimated to the queer community because of everyone I introduced them to. And they would go to parties that I would bring them to, like a limelight. My father danced with Amanda Laporte. He had no idea <laughs> <laughs> that Amanda's from New Jersey. I remember I went to Thanksgiving one time. I think Lisa and I and maybe Albert and Tiny, we went to your house for a, a, an Italian Thanksgiving. And I will never forget this. I admired your aunt's lamp. I said, oh, my God, I love your, I love that lamp. And she said, take it. It's yours. And I said, what? No. And she said, no, 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 take it, take it, take it. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, don't take it. And I, I was like, okay. And so I took the lamp and we took the subway home. And then afterwards they were like, I can't believe he took the lamp. He took the <laughs> damn lamp. And forever after I was known as the guy who took your aunt's lamp. And I had it. I must have had it for four or five years. I loved that lamp. But everyone was horrified that I actually took someone's lamp. No, the Italian, those people are givers. My mother, you would leave the dinner, which was incredible. Like, my mother would start with gravy meats <laughs> as an appetizer. That's sausage, <laughs> sausage, meatball, and brujol in, in tomato sauce as an appetizer. <laughs> then you have either a lasagna or a manicotti. Then you have like a turkey, chicken, or ham, or all three. And you have a million, you know, candy yams and things. Then you have, she was the original cronut lady. I wish she had trademarked that. She would open a donut and put ice cream in it. And that was dessert. And then she would give you a doggy bag to take home because she cooked so much there were left. Or a lamp. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a lamp too. And here's a lamp. I remember you you had your you moved your mother in with you after your father died is is that true? I did. Yeah. I mean, she made sure that that umbil umbilical cord was connected our whole life and I would have had catholic guilt. I I could not put her in a home. I just yeah. I brought her in. How long did she stay with you? Almost 2 years and she passed uh October November will be um 6 years and 2 weeks before that Anita Sarko had I was going to say, I, I wrote you a card because I knew that Christmas was going to be very hard for you because Anita had died and then your mother had died right there. And then the card got sent back to me because I guess it was the wrong address or something because I just knew that that was, that was going to be one, a really rough time for you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the people that we have lost along the way there have been so many you know we talked earlier about cynthia heimel and how you know i think candace bushnell i'm sorry i don't think sex in the city is based on candace but i think it's based on cynthia heimel's you know her columns she was the first sex columnist it devastated stephen sabin when she died he was very upset anita sarko let's just talk about her for a second and i and i adored cookie mueller who was another sort of oh, diarist she yeah. was like a downtown candace bushnell she would have been bigger and bigger uh, Stephen Saban was a mentor to me, starting at the Soho News. You were my gay mother. He was my gay father. You know, I mean, he really. Yeah. And you know what? He pioneered writing about the downtown crowd. Mm -hmm. He really was the one who made that okay. He put them on an equal level, starting in the Soho News and then at Details. And you wanted to be in his column. It really meant a lot. And Anita, of course, was a legendary DJ as well as a writer. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I loved her DJing because she wanted to elevate the crowd. She never pandered. She didn't care if they weren't dancing. And she didn't really want to take requests. She was insulted by requests. She would never play Top 40. And if she even played a, a song that you heard and recognized, it was some weird remix or some Afrobeat kind of version of it. So she was always pushing things forward. And she started finding that they didn't want her as much. They were hiring famous kids and Paris Hilton and people like that to DJ. It wasn't so much about what she brought. And she worked for a long time for Patrick McMullen, who's another one of my best friends. And uh, she was doing archiving of his photography. So that was like a horrifying loss. Her husband told me, he said, meet me at McDonald's. And he told me, and I'm having this screaming, crying scene at McDonald's. I can never imagine her doing that. You know, she seemed such a strong person. I know, but that's the thing people didn't know. She really was a cream puff. Like that was kind of a facade. And she kind of had talked about like, oh, if I ever get sick like my sister did, uh, I'm going to kill myself. So she kind of had planted that idea in her head. And the killer is, as it were, she had conquered cancer. She was in the five-year clear mark, and still she ended her life, but it was just so awful. I had helped her with her resume, send it out, try to get her writing jobs. There were no writing jobs, and it just, she seemed... Yeah, uh, I, I imagine so many people, the age, you know, like from 50 to 70 is, is, is sort of a hard slog for a lot of people. But I imagine for someone like Anita... The future just looked very bleak from from where she was, and she yeah, didn't... it's really not easy. I'm telling you, get it. You hear all that propaganda, how great it is to get older. It's like really. Well, I, I also think if you've spent a lot of time and you've built a career in that, you know, in the nightclub scene, for many people, it is a challenge as you get older to, you know, what's the pension plan you have? You know, it's not really designed for that in many cases, unless you own the club. I remember um, Lahoma used to say to me all the time, she was just a slip of a thing at like 30 years old. And she would say, I don't want to be a 50 year old go-go dancer. That that was the scariest thing in the world for her because there are no 401ks. You get paid under the table for so much of what you do. And you don't build up a, a retirement fund. It's 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 frightening. And I do respect John Witherspoon, who was Lahoma, who realized yeah, he, was, yeah. he was part of a druggy, drunken scene. Mm -hmm. And he was fabulous and a great drag queen, great party girl. But he knew when it was time to hang up the wig. And I'm not saying anyone else has to no. do that. I'm just saying his choice, yeah. his choice worked for himself. Yep. And he has a great job uh, in publishing. But the ones that go forever, I love them too. I love Flawless Sabrina. You know, someone like Baroness Sherry, who she was 94 and by God, she still went out. And when they took her car away from her because she would drive that car, she took the bus every night. She'd get all gussied up in her 90s and take the bus. Not to brace yourself. She was not a drag queen. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but she was a she was a club person. Oh, and yeah. she was old when I started going out. She well, she well, she was probably my age now when she started going out. My favorite Baroness Sherry story. She would show up with this young girl at all the clubs all the time, remember? And she would yes. introduce her as, this is my niece, this is my niece. Well, <laughs> one time we're all standing around and she's having a fight with her niece and the niece goes, Grandma! <laughs> Whoops, busted. <laughs> she didn't want anyone to know, bless her heart. But she did, she was so committed. And like I said, she took the bus to back and forth. And she would drive Sylvia Miles. She was like Sylvia Miles Morgan Freeman, <laughs> was like driving Miss Daisy. Until she, even Sherry, who had the patience of Job, 
couldn't take it anymore. And you know what? <laughs> Not to get back to Sylvia, but she was busted out of rehab. God bless her. She kept ringing that bell and the nurses would not respond. And I always said, I'd love, I'd love to hear the nurse's side of the story. <laughs> but Sylvia said to her friends, I want out of here. I don't want to die here. And they busted her out and she died at home. And I think that's so cool. To me, that's like a 1970s road movie. Like, we're busting this old lady out of the rehab. And she wanted to be in the comfort of her home. I, I was just, I was talking to Mao, Mao recently, Mao Padilla, the PR guru. And we were talking about Sylvia about her dying at home. And he said that one of his last conversations with her, she had, she was sort of in and out of it, but she he was very lucid for a minute. And she said, you know what I regret more than anything? And he said, I know Sylvia, you didn't get the Oscar. And she said, no, you know, in the end, I don't give a shit about all of that. All of that is gone. I just want to be comfortable for one day. I just want to be, uh, just be happy again for one day, which is so sad. And basically, <laughs> because... we went from the 1980s where the conversation was, do you have any drink tickets to now? She wanted to die at home. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really where we are in 2020. <laughs> but, but, but for somebody like Sylvia, her whole life was about being in the press and going out to people, put me in your movie, put me in your movie, you know, get me on your guest list. Da, da, da. And then in the end, it really was, she didn't give a shit about any of that. She just wanted to be good. I'm glad she let go for one day because it was, really <laughs> eating, it was eating her, eating her up. It's like, if she gave you a birthday gift, it was like a playbill of herself from a play in London that she signed. It's like, this isn't exactly what I'd asked for, but um, you know, and if she, one thing I love her for was she famously, plots a plate of pasta on John Simon, the hideous racist homophobic critic, because he had called her a gate crasher. And Sylvia didn't crash. And one of his, yo, oh, she didn't like the review he gave her. So she went, she saw him at a restaurant and she threw a plate of spaghetti. Like, she didn't like that he called her a gate crasher in a review. She never crashed. She was invited to everything. I do want to like ask a little bit about what you think the importance of the art scene was in that whole East Village art explosion at that time. And it was incredible. It was beyond belief with these overnight superstars. It, it doesn't really happen that way now. That was part of the insanity of the 80s downtown scene, just like celebutons, which were the, before Club Kids. There were celebutons like James and Lisa who were famous for being fabulous at parties, and then they ended up doing amazing things as well. The artists overnight were Keith Haring, Kenny Scharf, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it turned out they weren't flashes in the pan. These are the artists of our generation that are going to be known. I think Basquiat is going to eventually be the most famous artist who ever lived. His canvases go for more money than any other artist. What your typical day was in the 1980s when you and I were running around, especially together, you had so many events stacked on top of one another and you would you would go start at five o'clock seven o'clock at night and you would go to a gallery opening you go to the fun gallery you go to mary boone you go to leah costello something like that then you would go to an aids memorial for somebody then you'd go to a dinner party and then you'd go to a pre-party then you go to a club and then another club and then another club but there was always the gallery openings that were there that was a part of what you just did back then. Yeah, I think Fun Gallery that Patty Astor had in the East Village, that was the most fun gallery. A fun gallery, it really was. She brought together like the money people and the, the graffiti artists and everything. It was incredible. But you know what? Last year under lockdown, I thought, 
like you talk about the crazed schedule that I had, and I thrived on it, and I always thought I could never stand downtime. Joan Rivers was the same way. She hated an empty calendar page. Last year, when we were all forced to just stay home a lot, I never went out at night. There was nowhere to go. Um, 8.30, sometimes I'd be laying in bed. It didn't bother me. Somehow I was able to make the adjustment after all these years to finally say, I'm okay being alone with myself. I don't have to be at some crazy party. It was partly because we were all in the same boat. You know what I mean? If it was just me, like your life is over, but everyone else is running around, I would have had trouble with that. But since we all had to stay home at night, I was like, hey, I'm not a crazy person. Do you think there will ever be a time where you will slow down and you will not go out like you do now? Well, the problem is I'm physically at the age where obviously I don't want to stay up all night, but I really think New York is going to turn into a roaring 20s thing now with dancing. Dancing had stopped pretty much in Manhattan and moved to Brooklyn. But now there are so many empty spaces that people are open. You know, anybody with a few dollars can open a space and turn it into whatever they want. And people are itching for that social interaction again. So I'm, I'm expecting a nightlife explosion. Then again, like I said, I said Madonna's going nowhere. RuPaul's over. <laughs> My predictions are so wrong. Downtown is dead. But I want to be part of it. I want to be part. Of, I, you know, if you have to wheel me in like a Quentin Crisp or something. It's, oh, what a, what a darling old man. Whatever. <laughs> I'll do it. I remember saying, oh, if I'm 40, they're going to have to wheel me in. I'm now more than 40. And <laughs> there's something about nightlife that appeals to me because of the way people behave. They're not buttoned down. They're not nine to five acting. They're super annoying. I used to do columns of the biggest nightmares on the club scene. People would actually vie for placement. <laughs> Citrus Hills, the guy with the grapefruit on his head, would, would like lobby. And Jonah Falcon, the guy with the world's biggest penis, would lobby uh, for higher. Marlon Dungaro, yes. There was a guy named Gregory Kramer who was so shiny all the time, we called him Mop and Glow. And he, <laughs> no, but he started calling himself Mop and Glow. Just to get noticed, <laughs> he was like, hey, Michael, it's Mop and Glow. And I was like, okay, well, if the, if the lacquer fits. But one thing I loved about the 80s and the celebutant scene, Rudolph, who was Danceteria Majordomo, and Diane Brill were the couple. They were like the ruling couple. And they were straight out of a comic book. She was Jane Mansfield, Mitzi Gaynor. He was some kind of German spy or something. <laughs> there seemed like it. And they were sexy. They were exciting. They were nice. It, it just, it was glamour. It was pure glamour. You know, Rudolph was sort of, seems like one of the architects of downtown, you know, with, with, cause he started out with Hurrah, is that right? And then what was the club he had for one night only? That, that was Pravda. Pravda, one night. And he would never tell anybody what happened. And then there was another danceateria. There was a first danceateria on 13th. Where was the first one? The big, the great one was 21st Street. And then there was another one with John Argento after, which didn't quite make it. So, Do you remember Mud Club? Did you go to Mud Club and Club 57? Mud Club was the anti-Studio 54, and it was every bit as exciting as Studio. It was like a new wave, posy kind of club. Everybody there was an indie filmmaker or a rocker. Uh, they were so full of their own, you know, legends in their own behind. You know, I was once walking there and I said to these two girls walking ahead of me, would you like me to get you in Freedom Mud Club? Thinking they'd say, oh, thanks. And they were like, fuck you. We don't need you to get into Mud Club for free. Look at this asshole. And she read me to the doorman. I was like, okay, no nice picture will go unpunished at the Mud Club. But it was everything studio was not. It was dingy. It was on a side street in Tribeca when that was a complete wasteland. 
and the bands were kind of sick fucks and bands like that. <laughs> but some of the songs were played at both, like Debbie Harry, uh, Heart of Glass, Grace Jones. Some of her songs were played at yeah. both. David Bowie. So there were some crossovers, which I love. I love that. Complete opposite places with crossover music. Club 57 is something that is off my radar. I, I hear stories about it, but that's like Ann Magnuson, Joey Arias, John Sex, right? Isn't that where they all got their start? Yes, and it was sort of a kitsch place for the downtown scene. And uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, who that's one male duo like you two, Randy and Fenton, who showed the talent early on and both made it so big. I'm proud of you four. But I was in A Sound of Music by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Holly Woodland was Maria Von Trapp at Club 57. And her big line was, shut your Von Trapps. <laughs> and <laughs> I played a triple role. I, I was Sister Morphine, one of the nuns. I wanted to be Sister Sledge, but that was taken. I was one of the Von Trapps. And then I was Diana Von Ross in the talent contest. <laughs> it was so brilliant. I can't even tell you. You can't even approximate that level of camp. Camp for insiders. Uh -huh. Camp is now everywhere. It's on TV, thanks to you fuckers. <laughs> but <laughs> this was when you had to be a real insider, like an outlaw party, uh -huh. you know? And that's what Club 57 was all about. And then MoMA had an exhibit a couple of years ago of Club 57. I'm like, what? Where is the exhibit about area? I mean, that was like art in a club, right? It was like the most spectacular. Do you think that was the... Where do you rank that in your sort of league of clubs of all time or how do you even describe it it's my favorite of the of that era uh it was a club co-owned by eric good who went on to direct tiger king he made it big too <laughs> he never stops he keeps going and going and going yeah and it was a club where every five weeks or so they would redo the theme of the club from top to bottom with really artistic themes i mean it could be solitude or war or childhood natural history yeah. science fiction circus disco i remember all of them and the invitations the invitations were brilliant one one of them was like a capsule that it said, put me in water. It was like Alice in Wonderland. You put it in water, the capsule opens and the invitation comes out on a piece of paper from inside the capsule in the water. And I remember for natural history, they put little pinholes in quail eggs and then they sucked all the, the, and then they put the invitation in the empty egg and that's what they sent you. And if you got one of those invitations, by God, you were the one of the most fabulous people on the planet. And the house drag queen was Bernard Zett. Oh, the great Bernard Zett, yes. Who would do not only one characterization per theme, but sometimes three or four. Like for, for Solitude, uh, he was Anne Frank in the attic. Uh, the <laughs> he was both Lieutenant Uhura and Jane Jetson for enduring some science fiction. He was Marie Antoinette. Um, yes, he was Nikki Haskell. I remember one time. I can't remember what that was for. Maybe that was for um, Disco? I can't But Oh, he was so amazing. But it was such a great club. And like I said, the dance floor was fantastic, but I would push through the dance floor, get to the VIP. That's where Bernard Zett usually was. And that's where the people like us were. And it was very exclusionary, I have to admit. I became like one of the mean girls where like, oh, now I've got the hot seat in the cafeteria. I, I think my favorite party area ever was the Malcolm McLaren fans party. That to me, 
that is like the pinnacle of New York nightlife to me. That that was the most fabulous party I've ever been to. And there was the launch of Marilyn, Boy George's friend, and the sound system yes. didn't work, and she threw a fit. There was the Barnum and Bailey unicorn posing with John Sex, a Las Vegas lounge singer parodist who had like a unicorn hairdo, and that was the photo of the century because it was so insane. The Barnum and Bailey unicorn, which is a goat, <laughs> yeah. it's a fucking goat with a <laughs> with unicorn. A unicorn horn glued on. <laughs> it's total animal abuse. Posing with this singer with a unicorn hairdo. And the photographer, I've never seen a photo flash like that. <laughs> and I saw like Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and all that. This eclipsed everything. I remember um, Breakfast in Bed with Boy George. And it was held simultaneously at Area and Palladium. And they got that special permit where they could stay open until 7 in the morning. And everyone ran to, to sit in bed with Boy George. They had a giant bed in, in the lounge area. So people didn't have to go, where's George? Where's George? <laughs> <laughs> He's in bed. Sydney Masters. Sydney Team Masters. Uh, yeah, I mean, the effort, the money having money in a budget doesn't necessarily equal quality in nightlife, let's face it. But in this case, it did because at area, they were artists and artistic people running it like Eric Good. And he didn't care about making money. That wasn't the goal of the club. How often is that going to happen in nightlife? Bernard Zett is now a, a pretty successful interior designer in, in Hollywood. He did World of Wonders um, uh, office space, yeah, didn't Benton's he? Benton's kitchen. He's a genius. He's a <laughs> Benton, genius. and he did he did what your old house. I remember Randy when over you over off of Quanga. Michael, I remember we shared a really special experience together going to PTL, which became a very pivotal thing for me and Fenton. Hey, it was so much fun because it was just a car full of freaks going to Heritage Park, but then it kind of stayed with us. This was this was Tammy Faye and Jim Baker's amusement yes, park, right? Yes. yes, I think they'd been arrested, right? They weren't there when we went. weren't when we went there, the scandal was out, was out. They weren't part of it anymore. But um, I remember I purposely dressed like button-down shirt just to be boring. I didn't want to be made fun of. We were all dressed yes. down, and the people were still going, "Oh my god!" And pointing at us, like you, you asshole, should know what we usually wear. That, that thing where we were always, I remember always being kicked out of parties. I remember being kicked out of regimes with you. There was there was some party that we got dragged into that, that they, once we walked in, oh my God. I remember Mortimer's one time where there was a party and we got, I got kicked out of Mortimer's and Brooke Astor was there and so I would, that was my idol. But you met Blaine Trump at Limelight, remember? Yeah, what about Limelight? I mean, aside from, it was like a big, there was a pre-Club Kid era of Limelight, right? Club Kids weren't... And Limelight was a scandal. When it first opened, it was a bit of a dud. They had a few parties, and it wasn't really happening. I was there from the beginning. Uh, one of the first big kind of cool parties they had was something for Terry Toy and Stephen Mizell. Oh, Terry Toy. <laughs> but then there was the upstairs library that Fred Rothbaum missed uh, took over, and that was always a fun... It was all... You could always find a Billy Idol or Perry Lister or somebody in that library that was Stephen Saban that was one of his favorite haunts for a long time I loved it and um yeah I mean Dolph Lundgren and Grace Jones when they were a couple they would hang out in the library and you could just talk to these people they didn't have handlers they were out there and they would chat openly and there was the chapel area there was the main dance floor um 
and then became uh, Disco 2000 was the big club kid party on Wednesdays with Clara the Carefree Chicken and, you know. But I remember James once when I showed up at Limelight, um, Tom, the manager, kind of walkie-talkie, Michael Musto's here, have his drink ready when he reaches the top of the stairs at the library. And I walk up to the library and he hands me the <laughs> like a cranberry and I'm like, this is either the low point of civilization or the high point of my entire life. <laughs> no, but they did. They, they There was a lot of respect. And a lot people. of ass kissing. <laughs> but the killer is then later, James was with me when some woman was interviewing me for a newspaper interview. And she goes, what's been the high point of your life so far? And James goes, tell the story about the bucket cranberry. So I did. <laughs> so I did. And she made that the main thing in the article about how pathetic I am. <laughs> that I thought that was such a shining moment. <laughs> and that's when I started thinking maybe I need to develop some actual values <laughs> <laughs> nah maybe not well I think that I think um, uh, that's probably a good place to end this no it's just great to see you and it's nice to talk Likewise. to you and you know move out wet now could you imagine Michael Musto on the west coast I know. Would it ever happen, Michael? Would you ever come to L.A. for half of the year, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. For a job. Yeah, I'll go anywhere at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I think what's needed is a documentary about your life. That, I think, is... It, <laughs> and it's Your mouth for Netflix is yours. It needs to be a multi-part series, I think. That's a great idea. Well, listen, honey, it was wonderful catching up with you. I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to laugh or sing a song or two. God, you're old. <laughs> These references. Thank you. I love you guys. It's so great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so love much. You. I love you, Michael. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.